So here we are in Matthew chapter 3, and we've been saying for a couple weeks that this is a very pivotal moment. And this is, of all the different pivotal moments that we've seen, of the different people that we've been introduced to in Matthew chapter 3, this is the most pivotal moment, the baptism of Jesus. Matthew, as we've gone through, he started out by explaining that this is the genealogical way, genia, that way of who Jesus is in the birth order. In Luke, we see it through Mary. and Matthew, we see it through Joseph. He's also pointing out and making sure in the story with Joseph that we know that God is his biological father, if you will. So he is set up to be king through, uh, through the legal way, through his adopted father, if you will, of Joseph. He is set up to be king because of Mary and her genealogy. He is set up to be king through heaven because his father is God. So we see that being born, but here now we see, if you will, the anointing of Jesus as king. This is the beginning of what we call his earthly ministry. Jesus was born perfect. Jesus lived perfect, but now here he is. John the Baptist that we were introduced to has been preparing the way, telling people to repent or make clear your paths, as Isaiah says, that he is coming as the predecessor, announcing the way of the Messiah. And what is John preaching? He's saying the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near. And it's in these few verses that we're going to cover that the kingdom is the beginning of the established. It is right here that we see the kingdom established in this way. Jesus is anointed as king over his kingdom. So I want to read Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13 through 17. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with, whom, with him I am well pleased. These again are the three pivotal moments in these three verses that tell us about what the king and his kingdom will be like. Now just kind of a forewarning, this is starting to set up the next section. We'll get through chapter 4 in the next couple weeks. And then when we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, that can really be termed living in God's kingdom. But this is Jesus establishing what this is going to look like. This is telling us a lot about our king and what his kingdom will be. This is telling us why we call this an upside-down kingdom. The first thing that we see is Jesus appears alone in humility. Jesus appears alone in humility. This passage tells us that Jesus started in Galilee where he was living. And it, now he is traveling down. And at this point, we don't believe he has any 
disciples. He hasn't called the disciples to come with him. So he is traveling alone from the northern part of Israel in Galilee. He's now traveling outside Jerusalem into Judah, and he goes out into the wilderness where John is baptizing people in the Jordan. And again, thinking of an upside-down kingdom, Jesus is alone. Kings do not travel alone. Leaders of countries do not travel alone. But what do we see Jesus doing? He's traveling alone. He is on a purpose given to him by God that was set forth long ago. Again, I hope if you're in your your reading scripture, your reading Bible plan, that uh, you're in Isaiah. If not, keep going. Uh, If you haven't started yet, start. But as you see in Isaiah, and we've just been covering these chapters in Isaiah of seeing the announcement of what the king will be like. We're seeing the announcement of John the Baptist coming, a voice crying in the wilderness that Matthew mentions. And now here we see the king traveling alone. He travels from Galilee into the wilderness by himself in obedience to God. Now, when he gets there, notice that Jesus didn't balk at appearing lesser than John. Now, we're talking about God in the form of Jesus, in the Son. And he shows up on the scene and John's preaching. In our minds, at least in mine, you'd think that Jesus would walk out to where John was and be like, thanks man, I got it from here. Grab a seat with the rest of them. That isn't Jesus's approach at all. He appears with the crowd. John tells us that when John the Baptist sees him, he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John knew him. Now, they're cousins. If you go all the way back into Luke, you realize that uh, Jesus' mother and John's mother are cousins. And so they had spent time together while they were both pregnant. And John is about six months older than Jesus. And so, in fact, John, while he's in the womb, kicks when he senses Jesus is near. So John could know who Jesus was since they were both in their mother's wombs, which is just a fascinating thing all by itself. So John recognizes Jesus as Messiah. And we've talked about John's obedience, how he knew what his purpose was. And yet here he sees Jesus. And what does he do? Jesus walks out to John and asks to be baptized. He appears alone. He he appears alone in incredible humility. Okay, going back to our point, Jesus appears alone in humility. He walks up and says, baptize me. And the actual Greek wording here is John is arguing with him. John isn't just saying one time, no, I can't do that. You should be baptizing me. The wording that's used in Greek is actually John continuing to say, no, I can't, no, I can't, no, I can't. And then when Jesus finally says, you must do this for the righteousness to be fulfilled, John says, okay. John is humble in his approach. John knew all along and the way he lived, that he had a specific purpose for God that he was going to do. Jesus knew that he had a specific purpose that he had to obey, that he was going to represent this kingdom of humility, and he was going to exemplify it from the get-go. Jesus appears alone in humility. What's interesting is, spoiler alert, Jesus dies alone. When Jesus goes to the cross, when Jesus defeats sin, when Jesus defeats death and rises again, he does it alone. All of his disciples have left him for the most part. Uh, We're told that John and and Jesus' mother are there and maybe a few others, but nobody went through with him what he went through. So Jesus appears at this moment when we see his earthly ministry 
begin alone and Jesus would leave earth carrying your sins and my sins on his shoulders and he would die alone and then he would raise again in a tomb alone. So it's interesting because again, a king is never alone. And yet in this upside down kingdom, we see this alone and we see this humility. Secondly, Jesus demonstrates solidarity with humanity. I need to unpack this a little bit and I'm going to ask on a friend's help. Just kidding. It's a theologian named Leon Morris and he wrote back in the 1960s, Jesus might well have been up there in front standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of the salvation that he would in due course accomplish. Jesus appears with the very people that he is coming to represent. He is coming, and again, not with the Pharisees, not with the Sadducees, but with the sinners understanding their need for repentance, understanding their need for salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins. And then there is Jesus amongst them walking into the water towards John. Jesus is demonstrating this solidarity with them. Jesus is demonstrating his humanity his humanness. Even though he is all God and all human in a way that is very difficult for us to fully understand as mankind, here he is demonstrating who he is there to represent. Jesus was demonstrating his ability to relate to humans. That's what we talk about Jesus all the time and saying that Jesus can sympathize with us. When you empathize with somebody, it's feeling sorry for them and something that they're going through that you never have, but Jesus can sympathize with us. Again, uh, next week we're going to start talking about the temptations of Jesus that Satan brought upon him right after this. Uh, Jesus knew what it was to lose people that he loved. He knew what it was to weep. He knew what it was to celebrate in John 4. He knew he understood human emotions. He understood human loss. He understood human aloneness. And here he is demonstrating that he stands with us that need him so much. Jesus demonstrates solidarity with humanity. Now, Jesus, in this baptism, Jesus did not need to repent. Uh, he was free of sin. Jesus is showing that he is fulfilling all righteousness, as he tells John the Baptist, by being obedient and setting the example. So when he walks into the water, this isn't a sinner's baptism as we call it. He isn't washing off the old self and put it, becoming a new creation as we celebrated last week at baptism. This is more of a public anointing of Jesus for what his specific role would be. This is now Jesus taking the throne, if you will, of his kingdom as king. Uh, think of David uh, being anointed by Samuel and somewhat privately, maybe just in front of David's family, and he anoints him with oil long before he would actually become king. He was anointed into that process. But now here we see Jesus through this baptism is now the special reason, the purpose that God sent him to earth for was in the beginning process of being accomplished. And now that's what this is, which brings me to the third point. Jesus is anointed king over his kingdom. Jesus is anointed king over his kingdom. So these are the three pivotal moments. Jesus appears alone in humility. 
Jesus demonstrates solidarity with humanity, and now Jesus is anointed king over his kingdom. We see this incredible picture, and we're not sure if only Jesus saw this or if everybody that was near the Jordan River saw this. Uh, we don't know for sure. But what we see is that God declares who Jesus is. With the heavens open, and this is a term that is used throughout the Bible of, of seeing God. We don't exactly, again, know what this is or what this means, but God declares who Jesus is. First, he is announcing that this is the anointed Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah is there in front of them. He is now coming out of the water of a different baptism than what we know as baptism, but this anointing, and he is being declared that this is the anointed Messiah. This is the Savior. Secondly, he's announcing that this is his beloved son, that this is God. Again, we see that kingship, that the God of the universe is announcing, now here is my beloved son, the heir to the throne, the king of this kingdom. But we also see the suffering servant. Uh, we've talked about the suffering servant in the past, uh, been a couple years but we see the suffering servant mentioned in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, 1. <clears throat> in fact, if you were again in your Bible reading, we would have just read this. But I want to read Isaiah 42, 1 um, because of the words that you see as we just read in Matthew. Isaiah writes, Here is my servant. Think of about what God is just saying. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And then what do we see? The suffering servant, we see the spirit descend on him like a dove. Now, if you grew up like I did with illustrated Bibles, you think an actual dove came down on Jesus. But that is a spirit like a dove and the symbolism of that. Uh, a dove is used throughout the Bible in different areas. And here we see what would probably be a calming sense. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, it says the spirit moved above the waters of the earth during creation. And what do you see? That there is this incredible love, that there is this incredible handiwork, that there is this hope for this world that is being created and the Spirit of God is moving among it. You fast forward into the story of Noah's Ark and what do they release that comes back with a branch in its mouth but a dove symbolizing hope, symbolizing a new promise that is being fulfilled. And then here we have the Spirit of God descending like a dove in peace, in Hope is descending upon the beloved son, the king, the suffering servant, the anointed Messiah. And now here is the spirit coming upon him as he moves into what we call this earthly ministry. So, as citizens and ambassadors of this kingdom and this king, how then should we live? It's interesting because when you first, as you're like me or the couple people I've had conversations with around this, at first these couple verses don't seem like there's much for us. It's just, oh, there's Jesus and he's being baptized. Got it. What's next? When we stop and we start to look at all that this means, and when you stop and see how pivotal this moment is, 
And again, this moment is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So even for the disciples and the people at this time, they understood the significance of this moving forward. So again, if you know Christ, we are citizens of this kingdom. Not just citizens, but we are to be ambassadors of this kingdom. So how should we live? Number one, we should live filled with the Spirit. Now, we just talked about the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, and we see when you're living filled with the Spirit what it looks like, and when you're walking in the flesh what it looks like. And soon we're going to be going through Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And again, that's kind of how do you live in this kingdom? How do you live with the Spirit? But being lived filled with the Spirit starts with knowing God. If you're watching this and you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have never made Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, that's where it starts. It starts in understanding what Jesus has done and accomplished on the cross, asking for the forgiveness of your sins and then making him the leader of your life, that repentance that we talk about. That's where it starts. If you know Christ, then it's this continual knowing God. It's that continual, and we mention this so much, it's the continual getting to know God better, spending that daily time in his word, that daily time in prayer, that daily time in meditation, that focusing on him, and, and I cannot emphasize the aspect of prayer enough. And we'll see, Jesus always took time to go to pray. He took time by himself to pray, to spend time with God his Father. How much more so do we so desperately need that to be filled with the Spirit? We must be in a growing relationship with him. Just like Jesus, when we are living Spirit-filled life, we should be overflowing with peace and hope to the people and world around us. Think about the world that Jesus was in. Political upheaval. The Jews hated the Romans and the Romans didn't care much for the Jews. There was so much oppression. Uh, we'll see in Matthew 9, Jesus says that Jesus looked and he saw the crowds and he was filled with compassion for them. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But yet Jesus represents hope in a hopeless world. Jesus represents love and care in a world that was so absent of it. How much more so when we are filled with the Spirit should we be representing hope? Should we be representing love? Should we be representing peace? Jesus had this calming presence around him. And what does he call us? Paul tells us that we are to be peacemakers, that we are called to represent peace. One of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. Doesn't mean that there's other th problems that that causes when you represent that, but we represent a different peace than worldly peace. We represent the peace of God and the peace that passes all understanding. That is the peace, that is the hope, that is the love that we represent in this kingdom to the world around us. This means that we live differently than the world around us. That means that we are called to live differently, to represent something differently to the world around us than what the world has to offer for finding joy, for finding hope, for finding peace, for finding love. That is what we represent. Being filled with the Spirit is also living obediently. And this is what we see with John the Baptist and with Jesus. More so with Jesus, I'll explain in a second. 
But John the Baptist had a specific purpose that he was called to carry out, and he did it obediently. He didn't live for the world's standards. He lived to give God glory. He didn't live and do the things that he was doing to make a great name for himself. In fact, it came at a terrible demise for himself. It literally cost him his head being served on a silver platter because of his obedience to God. Jesus, so much more so being that Jesus, his obedience also called for his life. But here he was creator. Here he was God of everything. That all things were created by him and for him and through him. And he left heaven. He left the privilege of sitting at the right hand in the throne of God to come to earth to live as a human in his own creation. And we are to have this mind of Christ as Philippians chapter 2 tells us that we live in humility but we live in obedience as it says even obedience to the point of the cross. To the shame and the torture of the cross that Jesus did for us. Both of them would sacrifice everything, including their lives. But Jesus would be the sacrifice and the savior of the world. Obedience for us builds trust. This is a conversation that I have with my children a lot recently. Please obey me. When you obey me, it builds trust. I can trust you when you obey me. I have this fear of my child running into the road and I'm yelling stop and he doesn't obey. But as he obeys, I can now trust him in different situations. And as I say this to my son, I realize, oh, that's what God does with me. God calls me to obey him. And as I trust him, I obey him more. And as I obey him more, I am trusted with more. And so that is the importance of obedience. John obeyed. So many different people in the Bible that we study, they obeyed. So when we live filled with the Spirit, we represent peace, hope, and obedience. Secondly, as citizens and ambassadors of this kingdom and the king, we should live in humility. Christ-like love builds humility in us. And humility helps us to love others like Jesus did. Let me explain that a little bit. When we see the, how Jesus exemplified humility and we try to live like he did, it causes us to love others like he did. And as we love others like he did, it should be humbling towards us. It's this cyclical thing that you're going to see play out in our lives when we try to live as Christ does. Why? Because for me, it does not come naturally to love others the way that Christ loved them. For me, it does not come naturally to demonstrate humility in my life and put others first. Now, you see, we don't hear a lot about humility today. Uh, maybe you do in arguments. Maybe if you're trying to win an argument, you tell the other person that they should show more humility and let you be right or let you win the argument. Uh, or we use it usually as a weapon or it's something that we try to demonstrate um, is, is humility. But the problem is, and even, even more so in Christian circles, is that we hear a lot more about rights. Uh, your right to be happy. Your right for this. We are much more interested in what 
our rights are, and we seek out our rights much more so than we seek out Christ-like humility in our own life. Then we do confronting our own selves and our own views of how we view others and are trying to see people as Christ sees them. So what is Christ-like humility? It's quite simple. It's putting others first. Uh, humility asks the question, what is best for the mission of God and reaching others? Not, what is best for me? We are very naturally prone to seek out what is best for me. In fact, and I've mentioned this before, and I don't mean to keep harping on it, but as we look over the last year, and I'm not saying these problems didn't exist in the church, but man, has it been exemplified. We've seen in my own life so many um, church splits and, and dissensions and, and groups formed, and all of these different things happen. And I, I'm concerned because so much of the time, it's based on somebody saying, what is best for me? Uh, what do I want? And how do I get the Bible, in the case that they'd use it, how do I get the Bible to show that I'm right and what I'm doing is right? Uh, very rarely is the question asked, what is best for the mission of God and for reaching those that don't know him? Uh, again, we were just talking about this um, in Galatians 5 and some of the ways that we walk in the flesh and the way that it demonstrates itself is in discord and dissensions and selfish ambition. Those are not of the spirit, but are of us walking in the flesh. Uh, secondly, humility is just not looking down on others. Uh, we, again, naturally as human beings, we are all born with a bias. Uh, we naturally, uh, in our minds, put people in different groupings of how much respect we're going to show them or, or what we're going to do. And unfortunately, it's just part of the sin nature and it comes naturally to us. Every country I've ever been in demonstrates a bias towards another country or another skin color or you name it. And it might not even be in those. It might be uh, so many different forms that we see of, of bias happening. But one thing that I know is true is where humility is prevalent, there is an absence of racism, classism, and biases just disappear. Where there is humility is prevalent. Where there is much humility, the way that we view people changes. We no longer look down on them because of a situation in their life. We no longer look down on them because of a, a, a race or a color or gender or a uh, geographical boundary line that they grew up in. We view people as Jesus views them. We have a saying that we say all the time here and as a warning. We'll continue to say it. The gospel is always about humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege. If it's one thing we see Jesus constantly living out, if it's a phrase that summarizes Philippians chapter 2, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it is always played out. Humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege. Next is knowing our God-given role in his kingdom. 
When we live a spirit-filled life, uh, following the Spirit of God as we represent Him, as we are ambassadors and citizens in His kingdom, we know our God-given role in His kingdom. And that is quite simply, it is using our gifts and our talents and our abilities that God has given us for building the church. God calls us a body throughout scripture, something we're going to get into in a little bit. But we're always told that all of us have a different part of the body that plays out with us. That all of us, God has uniquely crafted with abilities and giftings and talents to use for his purpose. And just as kind of a spoiler alert, the church is God's strategy for building his kingdom. The church is God's strategy for building his kingdom. He uses the church and he uses individual people like you and myself, sinners saved by grace, to accomplish the task of using others. In fact, we are told that God demonstrates his power by using sinners like us and dwelled with his spirit. When we call upon his name, he uses us to demonstrate his power because the things that we're accomplishing for him cannot be done in our own power, but only through the power of God. You know, we can sometimes view the gospel as just Jesus gives salvation. But Jesus not only defeated sin and death, he demonstrated a way to live differently. He demonstrated that we can live a life full of grace, truth, love, peace, forgiveness, and hope. These characteristics are not done by us in our humanity. They are accomplished by us living in the Spirit and allowing the Spirit of God and His strength to guide and direct us. We are called to be ambassadors of this heavenly kingdom, not for us, but for God's glory. So here we have the King setting up His kingdom. The king, from the very get-go, demonstrating this upside-down kingdom that he will rule over for all eternity, that he has invited us into because of what he accomplished on the cross. And now we are ambassadors of that kingdom to the world around us, where you live, work, and play, so that every man, woman, and child can have multiple opportunities to see and hear the gospel for them so that they can join in that kingdom. I'm so excited to continue this study in Matthew, and I hope you are too. I pray that this is affecting you as much as it is me, that you are feeling the the power of God calling us to live differently than the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be called the children of God. The opportunity that we have to be able to worship together, the opportunity and the technology we have that whoever's watching this, wherever in the world that they are, that, Lord, we have the opportunity to worship you together in unity. Lord, I pray for those that have never made that choice to follow you, that you would work in their hearts and lives, that you, they would, that you would call them, that they would be able to, to understand, that you would take the blinders off their eyes and they would see what it is to know you to know forgiveness, to know their creator, to know the love that only you can demonstrate, the peace and the forgiveness and the joy that only you can offer, that they would understand what it is to to live a life filled with grace, to live a life filled 
with a guide who is also the author of life. But I pray for those of us that do know you, that you would continue to work in our hearts, that we would understand what it is to be spirit-filled and to live out every day filled in the spirit, Lord, that we wouldn't compartmentalize our lives living for different things, but Lord, we would understand what it is to live for you and your glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.